This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Welcome to the Trumpet's weekly review of all the important news. I'm Jeremiah Jacques, standing in for Mr. Joel Hilliker, and with me is our panel. Here in the studio in Edmond, Oklahoma, is Andrew Miller. Hello. And from our office in the UK is Mr. Richard Palmer. Good afternoon. And Brent Noctegal. Hello. And Mihailo Zekic. Good to be here. Well, Russia's war against Ukraine continues to rage on, and this week the Ukrainians really intensified their counteroffensive against the Russians, especially in the Kyrgyzstan region. It looks like Ukraine has now liberated all of Kyrgyzstan, um, as well as the strategic city of Lyman in the Donetsk region, which is just stunning to see. But at the same time that we see this encouraging news, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has announced that vast numbers of Ukrainians have been forcibly, illegally deported to Russia. To bring us up to speed on this, we'll go to Mihailo Zekic. Yeah, so on October 6th, uh, as you said, uh, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky gave an address. He was speaking to the Organization of American States in Lima, Peru, and he gave an interesting statistic. Now, the Ukraine war has come roughly to its halfway mark at this point. There's been a lot of news back and forth. Russia makes gains, Ukraine makes gains, etc. Um, this statistic that uh, Zelensky gave in his address, uh, he didn't give uh, per se like any like cited information on when this take pl- took place or if this is all at once or whatnot. Um, uh, from the context, it looks like he was referring to uh, in general since the war began. But he said in uh, his address that more than 1.6 million thousand Ukrainians were forcibly deported to different parts of Russia. Now, again, this is as far as conflicts go in the modern era, as far as movements of people, this is very, very, I I won't say unprecedented, but something we haven't seen in a very long time. And for him to give this kind of statistic shows just how far we've uh, come since February and gives us a bit of perspective on the human suffering, the human toll, not even just deaths, but of people being forcibly deported that the Ukraine war is uh, having on people. Yeah, just a really stunning figure there. Unbelievable numbers of people being uprooted from their homes and dispersed across various uh, remote regions of Russia. From what I understand, some of them are as far away as uh, Vladivostok, all the way there on the on the Pacific. So it's it's really difficult for people, especially the fact that great numbers of these are children uprooted from their parents, and and suddenly they find themselves thousands of miles away from Ukraine. So a, a serious war crime that's taking place there. And then I understand that Ukrainian President. Uh, Zelensky has also recently announced that there will be no peace talks between Ukraine and Russia as long as the war criminal Vladimir Putin remains head of the Russian Federation. What do you make of that? Uh, well, as uh, as I mentioned, at this uh, halfway point, roughly, it's a good time to sort of take a look at uh, what the state of the war is. Uh, when the war started, a lot of people thought Russia would be over and done with this in a very brief time. And then when Ukraine put up a resistance, people were thinking, oh, maybe they'll have a chance of kicking everybody out. And six months later, and I suspect both the Ukrainians and the Russians did not think this would be taking this long. 
But six months later, we see both sides doubling down. Of course, a week, a week or so ago, um, uh, Bruton annexed uh, the regions of uh, Luhansk and Donetsk that were previously his puppet states. And then he came and said that uh, he was incorporating them into Russia. Uh, ever since then, last uh, Tuesday, Zelensky said, uh, they, yeah, after this move, there aren't going to be any peace talks as long as Putin's in Moscow. Um, before, there were some attempts by third parties like Turkey to bring the uh, Ukrainians and the Russians together. And there were, I guess you could say, some fruits with that, with uh, the grain deal, which, of course, didn't uh, live up to what everybody was hoping. But uh, with this, uh, Zelensky saying it's either victory or bust. And by annexing the regions, as we covered on this program before, uh, Putin's basically saying it's victory or bust too. So uh, contrary to what many people would have hoped, um, th this war looks like it's going to be a much longer uh, stalemate with a lot more, a lot higher casualty count, a lot more human suffering. And uh, we most likely have not seen the worst in this war yet. Yeah, so this is quite a firm stance that Zelensky's taking here. No talks as long as Putin occupies the big chair in the Kremlin. Uh, how, how should we expect this to change the war dynamic? Well, um, a lot of people have been saying, and uh, including ourselves at the Trumpet, that Putin can't afford to win this war. He's um, our editor-in-chief, Mr. Jira Fleury, has talked about how Ukraine is the uh, the linchpin of Putin's dream of a renewed imperial Russia. It's uh, obviously the breadbasket of Russia. It has a uh, deep spiritual significance is where Orthodox Christianity was introduced to Russia from Kiev or Kiev. And uh, at this point, uh, again, I don't think people in Russia were expecting the war to go as badly as it has been. And Putin at this point, he is risking, if he does a full retreat, if he gives the West everything they want, He's going to be utterly humiliated to his armed forces and lose all credibility with the army. He's already making hundreds of thousands of uh, Russians angry with him with, say, his mobilization draft with hundreds of thousands fleeing across the borders to countries like Finland. Um, the economy, of course, Russia's never had a, a sanction-free economy, but now it's with the war, it's taken a really huge hit. Um, the last thing he needs is to make the military upset with him, and he has to give them some sort of a, a victory, and a victory where he's clearly not just trying to save face. There's been a lot of speculation if, if he'll actually use tactical nuclear weapons in Ukraine. Um, he keeps with his statements, Putin keeps sort of ping-ponging, like, we're definitely going to use them, but we don't want, we want to be level-headed here. Purposely uh, having some ambiguity to keep the West on their toes and to keep the Ukrainians on their toes. But um, with everything he's done so far, with the atrocities we've seen in places like Bucha and like in places in Mariupol, of I honestly wouldn't be surprised if if he thought that using a tactical nuclear weapon to wipe out the Ukrainians was the way he'd be able to save his regime that he would actually use it. Very sobering uh, implications, and and you really could see how this could dramatically escalate, uh, basically at any time now. But we, we are seeing both sides just continuing to dig in, and it looks like neither is willing to give up until the other is neutralized. What's your read on what the ultimate outcome of this will be? Well, um, how exactly in the very, very near future all these events will play out is anyone's guess. Again, I don't think anybody expected to war to, the war to drag on this long. 
But we know from Bible prophecy that uh, Russia under Vladimir Putin is only going to get stronger and stronger. Um, our editor-in-chief has written a lot uh, about a prophecy in Ezekiel 38 where it talks about a, a prince of Rosh, it should translate, and Meshach and Tubal. You can see that in the first few verses of the chapter. And uh, the prophecy is dated to the end time. And Mr. Fleury points to that man, that prince of Rosh, or Russia in modern English, as being Vladimir Putin. And he has spoken at length about how, you see, Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, these are all the names of uh, the ancestral peoples of Russia that settled from the European part of Russia to the Asian part of Russia. And how this signifies that this strongman of Russia, who would be around in the latter years, would conquer more nations of the old Soviet Union. And you tie that in with other prophecies like Daniel 11, where it talks about this uh, northeastern power scaring Europe. Um, not only was he going to take over more more uh, parts of the old Soviet Union, he's going to do so in a way that, that increases his strength, that increases his power, that intimidates and terrifies the rest of his neighbors. Mr. Fleury, again, has repeatedly pointed to Ukraine being one of the main parts of that old empire that Putin would like to bring back most of all. And so exactly what happens if he settles for half of Ukraine or takes all of Ukraine or something else uh, happens, we don't know. But at this point, it's pretty clear that Russia is in Ukraine. They're not going to be kicked out anytime soon. Putin's not going to do everything he can in his power to make sure that doesn't happen. And once the dust settles, it it's going to be a very, very much different dynamic in Eastern Europe with an ascendant Russia and uh, not just a, a demolished Ukraine, but also you'll see other countries in Eastern Europe, like the Baltic states, for example. They've always been terrified of Russia, and this war in Ukraine is giving them even more of a reason to fear Russia, and it's going to cause a lot of anxiety and instability in countries like the Baltic states, like Poland, and in the long run, we know, we know from other prophecies, it's going to bring those countries countries like that into the European fold. So to summarize, we're going to see an ascendant Russia, a descendant Ukraine, and a very, very frightened Eastern Europe. The name of that article, once again, is Bible Prophecy Comes Alive in Ukraine by Trump Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry. Uh, so please take a look at that on thetrumpet.com, or you can find a link to that in the show notes for today's episode. If you'd like to understand more about the big picture of this story and just about the future for Ukraine and Russia. Well, thanks very much for that, Mihailo. For the next story, we'll stay on the topic of Russia's war against Ukraine and take a look at a new poll showing that some Americans are growing less enthusiastic about U.S. support for Ukraine in this war. For this, we'll go to Andrew Miller. Yeah, the Ukrainian people are definitely filled with a resolve to push Russia out of their country. But uh, there's definitely signs on the ground that America may already be growing fairly weary of this war. Uh, a new poll conducted by the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft and Data has estimated that 58% of Americans oppose the U.S. providing Ukraine further military aid if it means higher prices at the gas pump and higher prices in the grocery stores. Uh, and about the same percent, 57 percent, believe the Biden administration should be looking for a diplomatic solution to this crisis, actively looking for a diplomatic solution to this crisis uh, as quickly as possible. And so uh, they're definitely that's 
that's a good bit over half of Americans who who want this war to come to an end, even if that means negotiating some sort of diplomatic solution that leaves Russia with Ukrainian territory. And that's an that's an important fact to keep in mind, especially since America is in an election year going to uh, midterm elections next month. Now, uh, ex-CIA director John Brennan, who was one of the architects of the Russiagate hoax, has definitely uh, firmly staked his opinion that he believes Russia was responsible for the uh, the recent uh, sabotage of the Nord Stream pipeline. Uh, but rumor around Washington is that it was Russia is the only three English words that man knows, which means that the knee-jerk reaction amongst conservatives, at least, is going to be to believe it wasn't Russia simply because John Brennan said it was. Uh, and Tucker Carlson, who's the uh, most popular conservative talk show host in America, was saying as recently as yesterday that he believes the American people are being lied to and the Biden administration is the most likely culprit for that sabotage. And so whether that's true or not, if the uh, if conservatives believe that coming into midterms and a conservative victory is likely in midterms, that means that as soon as next month, uh, you could definitely see a lot more pressure on the Biden administration to stop sending money to Ukraine, uh, start focusing more on border security in America, start focusing on bringing inflation down in America and look for a way out of this crisis, even if that means uh, brokering some sort of negotiation. Now, like I said, Elon Musk <laughs> got himself in quite a bit of trouble this week for uh, posting a posting a suggested peace plan that would leave Russia with most of the land it's already conquered. Now, we'll see. Neither Russia nor Ukraine seems like it's uh, <laughs> it's going to be very willing to go along with such a peace plan like that. But it's definitely something that uh, a lot of Americans like, especially on the Republican side of the political spectrum so that'll be that'll be interesting to watch going forward because right now we do see uh, at least a tentative american german alliance against russia over the issue of ukraine uh, but bible prophecy is like the one in uh, ezekiel 27 and isaiah 23 about the smart of nations uh, definitely talk more about a russian german alliance against america and so at some point in this uh, in this geopolitical maneuvering in the months going forward, you are definitely going to see uh, Germany move away from the American side more closely into the, the Russian camp. Uh, and th this sabotage over the Nord Stream pipeline and uh, and America's desire to uh, to get out of Eastern Europe uh, could definitely play uh, a strong role in that realignment. Yeah, so this is interesting to see this uh, this poll that you mentioned from the Quincy Institute. And I guess this was somewhat inevitable with a war so far from U.S. soil and one that's dragged on for more than seven months now to see some, you know, American attention spans and feelings of generosity kind of reaching their limits. Uh, but I wonder if the respondents of this poll had been reminded of the treaty that America made with Ukraine back in 1994, if the results would have been different because back at that time ukraine was nuclear armed they actually had the world's third largest arsenal of nuclear weapons and the u.s signed a treaty saying 
Ukraine, if you will agree to get rid of your nuclear weapons, then we will guarantee your territorial integrity if you're ever invaded. We will protect you. And of course, Ukraine agreed. They liquidated their massive nuclear arsenal. And now here we are three decades on and Ukraine is being invaded. Its territory is being taken. So the U.S. is treaty bound to support Ukraine for as long as it takes under the terms of that agreement. Um, but, you know, I doubt that all the respondents of that poll are aware of that agreement, or maybe they don't care about the integrity of American foreign policy promises. I don't know. What are your thoughts about that? Definitely. I haven't heard much about that treaty recently. There, there's one conservative commentator I follow who who, who is aware of it. Um, I won't say his name on the program to, today, but he, uh, he, he definitely uh, was of the opinion that, like, we are not bound to follow a promise that Bill Clinton made 30 years ago and should be more concerned about border security. Uh, and so even if you did, like, you are right, America is treaty bound. I mean, we, we, we made promises. <laughs> we made promises to protect these people if they gave up their nuclear weapons. Uh, uh, they did give up their nuclear weapons. Now they're suffering horribly, and America America does have a treaty obligation to protect them. Although I do wonder if, even if you reminded a lot of those people in that poll of that treaty, I do still think a lot of Americans are more concerned about inflation uh, and on the conservative side, border security than they are about Ukraine. That, that might be short-sighted uh, and, and is definitely... Uh, puts a, a big black mark on the integrity of, of American foreign policy. But it, it does seem to be uh, that does seem to be the the attitude in the nation. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. Um, and then as far as uh, those respondents who are in favor of making Ukraine give some of its territory to Russia in order to establish peace, um, I wonder what your thoughts are about the parallels that some people are drawing between this and, you know, Neville Chamberlain and others uh, before World War II and the view that Chamberlain and many others were taking, saying that if Adolf Hitler were just negotiated with, you know, give him a little bit of Czechoslovakia, a little bit of Lebensstrom, and then he'll be satiated and we'll have peace. Um, do you feel like that's a valid comparison there or is this apples and habaneros? <laughs> no, Winston Churchill said that the appeaser is one who throws meat to the alligator and hopes he eats him last. So I definitely think that's a valid comparison. I'm not saying that America is going to be successful at negotiating any sort of peace treaty with Russia. But like even if even if Elon Musk's peace plan was adopted and uh, you were able to convince Vladimir Putin to stop this war temporarily and while keeping 15% of Ukrainian territory, I think it would be exactly like the Sudetenland to where like he'll take the rest of it later. Right. Uh, it, would, it wouldn't be this is the solution to all the diplomatic problems between yeah. Russia and Ukraine. It would be like this would be a way to allow Putin to keep what he has, catch his breath, and, and, and regroup. Exactly. Yeah, I think you're right. So it's, a, it's hard to see what a, what a great solution here would be. But uh, yeah, thanks very much, though, for bringing us up to speed on that, Andrew. And uh, it turns out that with the Nord Stream pipeline sabotage, that's, of course, a huge story. And you mentioned that there's debate about it, ab about who the culprit is. Uh, and there's been more evidence coming in just over the last couple of days suggesting a, a different culprit altogether. To tell us about this, we'll go to Mr. Palmer. Yes, when we talked about this on last week's show, I think it was pretty unknown what was going on here. Uh, I think we've had enough evidence this week now to pretty much conclude Russia was behind this and um, we can understand why. 
So it came out this week on Monday, Russia kind of quietly announced or you know, it came along and said, oh, you know what, guys? Nord Stream 1 has been destroyed, but Nord Stream 2 is still going. Uh, the, the, this attack hit... So each, each Nord Stream pipeline is made up of themselves two pipelines. So there's Nord Stream 1 A and B and Nord Stream 2 A and B. Nord Stream 1 A and B are destroyed. Nord Stream 2 A is damaged. Nord Stream 2 B is still going which is tremendously convenient for Russia. Mm. If this were the United States doing it, uh, this was horribly inept, which, I mean, I guess with this administration, you definitely can't rule that out. So there is that possibility. But uh, this, puts, this puts them in a very interesting position, and it, I think it's, it actually might be quite the smart move for them uh, because now they can turn to Germany and say, okay, Germany, you're feeling the squeeze with with the gas, but we can we can send you gas, but you you have refused to certify Nord Stream two. It's there, it's working. Ever since the start of the year, Germany has refused to certify this. It's been a big red line for them, uh, and so now this kind of puts them in a bind. If they want gas, they've got to come back to Russia. They've got to recertify Nord Stream two. Uh, that probably then also means renegotiating some of their relationships with Gazprom, and it potentially opens the door for Germany doing uh, an energy deal with Russia. And you look at what's going on at this time of year and all around the world, that, that there's going to be a, a lot of pressure on Germany to do just that. If you've got winters coming around the corner, uh, you've got gas prices, will, or, you know, people are going to be using that gas a lot more to heat their homes. Just today, we had the announcement from OPEC, or maybe it was yesterday on their time zone, uh, that they're going to be dramatically cutting their uh, their output. I think it's by about 2 million barrels per day. They'll be cutting their oil output. Uh, by the time you take into account the fact that some of those producers like Iran and Venezuela are under Western sanctions, I think the actual effect in terms of what will hit the West is about a million barrels per day. But still, you know, as I think we're all very well aware, gas, petrol is not exactly cheap right now. A major cut like this, well, that piles on the pressure. So all of these different energy sources, you've got uh, you've got the pressure coming on. This affects fertilizer. This is an aspect that has not been talked about as much as heating homes. But you know, Germany is home to so many chemical companies, and natural gas is a key ingredient in so many of these different chemicals. So if oil is expensive, gas is expensive, chemicals are expensive, well, fertilizer is going to be expensive, food is going to be expensive. Uh, so that really does put the economic pressure on Germany. And this Nord Stream 2 pipeline looks like it's been destroyed in such a way that uh, leaves a bridge back for this relationship between Germany and Russia. So it does seem, you know, at the, we've talked about a lot on this show how Germany has been, um, you know, their support for Ukraine has been less than advertised. They'll have these big announcements and then it will be like, oh, actually, the weapons won't arrive for another year or another six months, you know, some kind of ridiculous delay. And so they've not really been supporting Ukraine, but there certainly seems some evidence that the relationship with Russia has been has been a bit strained as well. It does seem like they've been refraining from helping Ukraine. We've talked about them having done a deal with Russia, but there's been some strain in that relationship. This pipeline attack could be something forcing them to come back to a much closer and more openly close relationship with Russia 
you know, if they want that, if they want that gas, they've now got to go back to Russia and they've got to certify the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, something they said they never did, they would never do. But now Nord Stream 1 has been damaged. That's their only option for short term gas supplies now. Yeah, definitely a lot to keep our eye on there with these uh, these massive pipelines. What would you say is the big picture importance of this? And is there any literature that you would suggest for listeners who would like to study it from kind of a high altitude? Yeah, I think there's a couple of good places that you could go. Mr. Stephen Flurry uh, had his trumpet brief on this subject this week, Nord Stream Pipeline Sabotage. And as that article talks about, you know, regardless of who carried out this attack, we're expecting this closer relationship between Germany and, and Russia. And like I said, I think this does look like part of a calculated attempt on Russia's part to both send a warning to the US and, I mean, to the world, but also to try and force Germany back into that much closer relationship. And uh, this is something as well we addressed. I addressed in a, an article a few years ago, the vicious cycle German-Russian relations, where even if you look at history, there is a powerful warning in this relationship. You know, both of these countries have the potential to hurt each other a lot. There's no big natural borders between them. There's just a big flat plain that's called Poland. And uh, so these two they they can hurt each other and they do often end up fighting. They can also help each other a lot. Germany is this big high-tech center and not just today. You know, you're looking at five, six hundred years of history, the same role has played out. Russia, meanwhile, has a huge amount of vast natural resources that it often needs more Western technology to access, to develop, to really utilize. Uh, you can see the same in the military dynamic where Russia has often needed German technology, but Germany has often needed help from Russia as well. So there's a lot to get these two fighting. There's a lot to incentivize cooperation. So you have this relationship where uh, the two you know, echo back and forth between being best friends and, 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 and strong enemies. And when the two start working closely together, that's usually because they want to go fight other people. Uh, that's a dynamic. So there's a warning from history when you see those two working together that you know, when they do that, they're doing that so that they can put their energies outwards. And you bring in Bible prophecy, you bring in and Mr. Flurry, Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry, Mr. Armstrong before him both talked about this, that you know, the Bible prophesies that you're going to have this boiling dissatisfaction within Germany for the United States, that they'll want to bring down the American-led world order. And if you want to do that, who do you want to work with? Well, it's Vladimir Putin. You know, he is the, one of the biggest, most public fighters against that U.S. world order. So when you see Germany being kind of lukewarm in, in Ukraine and not sending those weapons and doing deals with Russia, well, that's a strong sign that they're basically siding, they're siding with, with, with Russia against the United States. And that's exactly what the Bible prophesies. And the Bible says that this is going to get much worse, that you're going to uh, see Germany pushing much, much harder against the United States bringing down this American-led world order, you know, declaring economic war, uh, a war that then heats up against the United States. This relationship with Russia you know, doesn't stay fantastic. You know, there, there's, there's that threat there still, but this there's, we're seeing a growing openness in their antagonism to the United States, and this antagonism is only going to grow. Uh, and so and you can read more about that history again in that article the vicious cycle, German-Russian German relations. This antagonism of Germany, this enmity from Germany is a key part in, uh, in end-time events and, and God's plan for this end-time. 
The Vicious Cycle in German-Russian Relations is the name of that article, and we will leave a link to that in our show notes for today's episode. Thanks very much for that, Mr. Palmer. For the next segment, we'll turn our attention to Israel, where former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is again gaining in political popularity. For this, we'll go to Brent Noctegal. Yeah, this election's coming up very fast as well. Most people are focused on what's happening in the United States, but uh, on November 1st, Israel go, will go to its first election in about 18 months. It's actually been now, uh, and so even though they've had a lot before then in the in the previous uh, year and a half, and what it's looking like now, according to the polls, is that Netanyahu is, has taken the edge. His Likud party, based with other right wing uh, and right wing parties, have it seems um, are going to be able to edge out the opposition. There was a poll that came out uh, just today in Israel Hayom. While it did say that the left and the right, or Lapid's party, the, the current prime minister, Netanyahu, would get 60 um, Knesset seats each, which, which would technically split it down the middle, they also asked a really interesting question based on would you actually, if you're going to vote this way, would you? how sure you are you that you're going to come out to vote? And so if you look at the how excited the, the voter base is, it really does push Netanyahu's party over the edge to get the um, to get the votes necessary. And I think this is interesting. It's uh, there was another article that came out in the Times of Israel by Haviv Retiv Ger, uh, a really good commentator uh, about Israeli politics. And he brought out the fact that this is the first time in Eight in ten years, I guess it is, uh, or just over that, where Netanyahu has not been the incumbent, and so there is this added bonus to his um, campaign that can he can now address the public on the issues of this government that has failed over the past year and a half. It was his government was brought down. You'll remember because everyone got together and said anything but Bibi, anything but Benjamin Netanyahu, it's going to work out. Things are going to be better. And so we have seen for the past 18 months, 18 months, this anything but Bibi government. And it was meant to be a cure-all for Israel's social ills and its economy and the housing crisis and et cetera, but it hasn't changed much. And so here comes Netanyahu now uh, pushing his political platform on issues that, is it's not just, you know, watch out for the leftists or watch out they're going to be in bed with the Arabs or watch out um, they're going to, you know, make Iran get a bomb, allow Iran to get the bomb. All these these type of the rhetoric that was true uh, and in large part, um, but really did fail to motivate Isra the Israeli base. Um, now what he has is an opportunity to say, well, you wanted anything but Bibi, you got it. Has your life improved? And since it hasn't, I think uh, some commentators are seeing Netanyahu as, as a shoe-in, actually, for this, uh, for the November 1st election. Yeah, so it looks like some, some real traction that uh, Mr. Netanyahu is gaining here. And uh, I understand that we also got some news this week about the way former U.S. President Barack Obama truly sees Netanyahu. Yeah, this isn't surprising, this this leak. It was comments that were made to reporters off the record in January 2017, just a really crucial time period in biblical prophecy events that were taking place behind the scenes in the United States. Um, and Mr. Flurry writes about that at length in his new book, America Under Attack. Um, but but this conversation, Bloomberg reported a transcript of it, and it, it says, I'll just quote Obama now. He says this, what I said this, what I worry about most is is there is a war right now of ideas more than any hot war 
and it's between Putinism, which, by the way, is subscribed to at some level by Erdogan, the Turkish president, by Netanyahu, or Duterte, the, uh, the Philippine leader, or Donald Trump. And so he, he puts all these leaders together, just says that they are kind of like Putin, kind of like a dictator, and Netanyahu is lumped right in along um, with with Putin, and, and people are coming out and writing, well, this is kind of, I mean, we, we figured, Net, uh, figured Obama thought this way, but we didn't know that he was speaking to reporters, um, that he thought that Netanyahu was a dictator like Putin. But it's, it's just interesting... Um, considering what Mr. Flurry has written about the return to power of, of Donald Trump, uh, and he has Mr. Flurry as linked in, especially in his article, uh, What Will Happen After Trump Regains Power, he linked uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu as being kind of p part of this return to power, return to strength of this relationship between Trump and Netanyahu going to happen again like we're going to see this relationship again most likely and so i think it is interesting that that obama himself recognized that these are two leaders of the same ilk he would call them dictators um nevertheless you can put that put that, that to the side but i think when you see netanyahu's polls number poll numbers rising at the same time that that president trump's popularity is rising in the u.s you can really see how both these leaders could make a return to power very soon yes quite a lot to uh to keep an eye on there what uh what would you say is the significance of this in terms of bible prophecy and is there any literature that you would point listeners to yeah, I think this article, What Will Happen After Trump Regains Power, is a great article to go through because it does bring in the Israeli element to this relationship that Mr. Flurry talks about, a prophetic relationship that's found in 2 Kings uh, chapter 14, which details an ancient King Jeroboam II that rose to power um, and was really put in power, I should say, by, by God as a way of extending mercy upon the northern tribes of Israel to delay their captivity to the Assyrians. And he established a firm relationship back then, uh, this Jeroboam II, with the southern kingdom of Judah, uh, which is the, the modern descendants of that that southern kingdom make up the Israeli state today. And Mr. Flurry brings out in that article how this is a prophetic, uh, it's a prophetic um, type is to be fulfilled in the time we're living in now with this modern Jeroboam II, President Trump, and this relationship with Israel as well flourishing. And so while we don't have a Netanyahu mentioned in that prophecy, um, the fact that they get along so well and that both rose to power in, well, the, that the friendship between the two nations was strongest between Trent, Trump and, and Netanyahu, um, we could again see Netanyahu come back to power to really kind of complete this prophecy in 2 Kings 14. Well, thanks very much for that, Mr. Nartigal. We will take a short break now, and when we come back, we'll talk about North Korea's most provocative missile test in years, Germany's self-serving new gas deal, an increase in West Bank attacks, and a disturbing alliance between the United Nations and Big Tech. We'll be right back. You're listening to Trumpet Hour, the week in review. 
This week, North Korea test-launched a ballistic missile, marking the first time in about five years that the nation has fired such a missile. To tell us about this, we'll go back to Mihailo. Yeah, it's uh, not just uh, one ballistic missile that uh, North Korea has been launching. Um, on Thursday, uh, Pyongyang fired two short-range ballistic missiles off of its east coast, which makes the uh, sixth weapons launch or weapons launch, sorry, in 12 days. So there's been a bit of a a shooting spree, I guess you could say, coming from uh, Supreme Leader Kim Jong-un. I mean, obviously, North Korea is a pariah state, doesn't have uh, many friends, and uh, does what it can to saber-rattle, hoping to get maybe concessions from Washington or from Seoul. But one test in particular was interesting. As you mentioned, uh, a unique test um, where a ballistic missile on Tuesday was fired by North Korea, and it flew over northern Japan before splashing in the Pacific. This was the first time that such a such a missile uh, came this close to Japan since 2017. Normally, for obvious reasons, the main uh, adversary with North Korea is South Korea and its American backers. But of course, Japan is part of the American Pacific uh, Alliance as well, and uh, Pyongyang hasn't forgotten that. And so... To see it uh, saber-rattling with Japan, who's a much wealthier country than South Korea, with a much, much better military, much, much more well-established in the international system, um, shows how bold Kim Jong-un is getting and uh, how he's not afraid to start poking at his neighbors even more than he has been previously. Yeah, so uh, this this flew right over Japanese skies. As you said, there was sort of reaction to this, should we expect, from the Japanese well, officially, Japan has forever renounced war as a sovereign right and will never go to war with its neighbors. We know that to be bogus uh, uh, between the fact that it has one of the most powerful militaries in the world, even if it doesn't call it a military, between the fact that it already sends its soldiers on UN peacekeeping missions. But uh, we've seen a lot of potential from Japan for war-making power. We've seen a lot of um, statements from people like recently deceased Prime Minister Shinzo Abe about making Japan have a stronger military. But attacks like, well, it's not an attack, I guess, provocations like this one give Japan the reason it needs to increase its military. Obviously, uh, it has its famous Article 5 in its constitution, which forbids it from having an offensive military. Um, People like former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, like uh, the current Prime Minister Fumio Kishida, they've been advocates of uh, reviewing that and changing that. And that's pretty controversial in Japan. But as more and more saber-rattling from countries like North Korea, like China happens, there's giving more of an impetus for Japan to move forward with uh, like this. Um, this uh, for example, Shinzo Abe was an advocate of Japan acquiring counter-strike ability, and Kishida follows suit with this philosophy. In other words, to be able to launch a, to have to deter its enemies by having enough power to launch an effective counterattack or even to preemptively attack. Now, constitutionally, Japan's only allowed defensive uh, military measures. Preemptive attacks on potential enemies is, I guess, technically defensive, but you're still also the one firing the first shot. And incidents like the North Korean missile launch now give more credence to this worldview, to this military doctrine, 
within Tokyo and within the Japanese population uh, themselves. They don't like the idea of, I mean, they live on an island. Theoretically, they should be safe from enemies. And all of a sudden, they're getting uh, people in Japan got emergency notices that a North Korean missile was flying above their heads. That doesn't make, wouldn't make Japanese people uh, eat, uh, feeling safe. It wouldn't make anybody feel safe. And so with provocations like this, and this almost certainly won't be the last one, we're starting to see Japan see more of a need to have a military, more of a need to be more assertive in the Indo-Pacific, and more of a need to be able to openly project itself as a power not to be messed with. Could you place this in the context of Bible prophecy for the listeners? Of course. Well, in this program, when talking about Asia, we often point to scriptures like Revelation sixteen twelve, which talks about a block called the Kings of the East, which uh, is a conglomeration of Asian countries that fight against the beast power of Revelation. You look to uh, east of Europe, the beast power. What do you see? You see Russia, China, Japan, all these strong uh, Asian countries. Revelation uh, 9 talks about them having a 200 million man army. Only Asia could field such a, a large army without draining its uh, society completely of men. Um, we expect Japan to be a part of this uh, army, this group of the kings of the east. Um, and you also look at other prophecies. I mentioned Ezekiel 38 in the first segment talks about this Prince of Rosh leading an Asian conglomeration. You mentioned, you see Magog or China mentioned. But in verse 6, you also see uh, two peoples, Gomer and Togarma mentioned. And these are the ancient uh, ancestral peoples of Japan. So at this point, Japan isn't too friendly with Russia. They don't like what Russia's doing with Ukraine. They don't like what Russia's ally China is threatening uh, against Taiwan. But we see in the future, Japan is actually going to be allied with this Prince of Russia, supporting what he's doing, sending men to fight under him. And so while Japan at this point is a, a solid member of the Western alliance, it's one of America's strongest allies, some might think it's good to have a strong uh, militaristic Japan there, a liberal democracy. It's better than having a strong China, better than having a strong Russia. But in the end, we're going to see Japan in its rise to militarism turn towards towards these Asian powers, towards these uh, more vicious uh, beast powers. And uh, we're going to see them pull their militaries together and wreak some real havoc on the earth. We've got an article up on thetrumpet.com. It's called Land of the Rising Military Might that goes through those uh, prophecies that Mahilo just mentioned there. And then we also have an article that'll be up on thetrumpet.com very soon about this latest North Korean provocation and Japan's response to it. It's called Japan is Determined to Increase Defense Capacity. So please keep an eye out for that one in the days ahead. Thanks very much for that, Mahilo. We'll turn our attention now to Europe where Germany has forged a new gas deal that gives us some insight into Berlin's real concern for other European nations. So tell us about this. We'll turn it back over to Mr. Palmer. Yes, and that insight is it doesn't have any concern for other European nations. Uh, it was towards the end of last week, Germany announced that uh, they were putting together a 200 billion euro gas bailout for their people and their um, and their companies, their businesses, which was greeted with basically a what in the world from the rest of Europe, because up until this point, 
Europe had been working on a kind of a European solution. And then Germany just all of a sudden said, forget you guys, we're taking care of our own people. Uh, it has caused just about everybody in Europe to be mad with Germany. This is exactly the kind of thing that Germany has spent the last 15 years forcing other European nations not to do. It kind of goes against the same budget rules that they've been forcing on other countries, uh, but they do what they want. Uh, and so I think it, it shows a lot about the European power dynamics. You know, it shows who rules Europe. Italy probably would not have been able to do this. Germany would have been able to stop them. A lot of these other countries, maybe even France. Uh, now, part of this is because Germany has a much sounder economy. They've been paying off their debt rather than borrowing more money recently. So they do have the ability to borrow a lot like this, while other European countries don't. But it does kind of make a mockery of this European approach. It means that German businesses will be able to manufacture goods at a cheaper rate than their European counterparts because their oil and their gas will be subsidized by the, uh, the, the German taxpayer and the German government. It means that uh, Germany will be kind of hoovering up a lot of the gas that's available in Europe that Italy and some of these other countries have been trying to compete for and now probably won't be able to afford. You've got the very real possibility of this winter, countries like maybe Italy and Spain rationing gas and having blackouts or some some form of rationing system while the german government pays for the german consumers to be able to continue to to have it so i think yeah it shows a power power dynamics in europe but i think it's also an interesting example of just how any crisis becomes a european crisis you know we kind of talk about this a lot on this show that europe's in this halfway house between becoming a super state and it's it's moving there but it's not there yet. And because of this halfway status, it just naturally means that anytime you have a big crisis and everyone kind of looks to themselves and it, it then starts feeding into this European crisis, you see it just even in the way that the debt hasn't been fixed yet, the way that now you've got the potential for an economic collapse in Italy, and then that becomes Germany's problem because they share a currency. Uh, and uh, you, you get a picture of Europe as this kind of crisis making machine that takes any bumps in the international system and then it suddenly becomes a crisis of european unity and a big state of well is it is everything going to fall apart yeah this uh european energy situation is really just becoming a, a full-blown crisis and of course this is happening just as winter nears uh, would you be able to talk about this just briefly in the context of the significance in terms of bible prophecy yeah, so we have a, an article uh, from several years ago called called Forged in Crises that talks about the way that Europe's founding fathers really believed that the European Union would come together uh, due to crisis and that even they designed the euro in a way that they knew would cause financial crises unless Europe went the rest of the way into a political union. And what's fascinating about this is you look what Mr. Armstrong said and you look what Mr. Flurry said based on what God has revealed in the Bible. And they also said, you know, you're going to see a Europe come together in crisis. This is the picture that we get of Europe from Bible prophecy, that they come together as a united nations or as a united group of nations. But you know, Daniel chapter two, when it's prophesying of this United Nations, it talks about it being an, you know, part of iron and part of clay and partly solid and part of broken. It doesn't mix well. It can be pushed together by the heat and the pressure of a crisis, uh, but it's not something that's a natural a natural fit. And so both of these individuals talks about this a lot, 
uh, and that you're going to see you're going to see this you know, really force them to come together. Mr. Flurry even said in 2008, you're going to see people say you're going to see nations leave the European Union. You're going to see people say the whole European project has failed. Don't listen to them. Uh, because this is the same dynamic that the Bible prophesied. I think you can see the appetite for the role of the Catholic Church. Bible prophecies like Revelation chapter 17 tell us that the church is going to play a major role in bringing this together. And you can see how a European Union that's just kind of led by brute force or economic strength from Germany, uh, there's, a, there's an ingredient missing. So I think you can see how these crises will point to Europe getting more involved. But it's exactly the dynamic that we expect from Bible prophecy. And you can watch for this energy crisis to build, for this winter to potentially to be a tough winter for Europe. But it's going to push some major, major changes. And you're going to see the rise of this power in Europe that is such a pivot, plays such a pivotal role in end time events, a power. You know, when you see Europe come together, there's a huge amount of tremendous power there. It's going to rock the world. It's going to bring about some very dark prophecies. But it's all part of this step-by-step plan that, is, that, that God is in control of uh, and, is all, and is just leading to beautiful hope in the world. So Forged in Crisis takes you through some of that dynamics and some of those prophecies. Forged in Crisis is the name of that article. It goes through the passages that uh, Mr. Palmer was just discussing there and some others in detail. So please check out our show notes for a link to that. And thanks very much, Mr. Palmer. For the next story, we'll take a look at the Middle East once again, where terrorist attacks in the West Bank are increasing. For this, we'll go back to Mr. Noctegal. Yeah, we haven't really spoken about the violence inside the West Bank for some time. We normally talk about the rockets that are fired over from the Gaza Strip into Israel. Um, but the West Bank holds far more uh, Palestinians. It's, it's it's far more uh, dangerous threat for Israel than even Gaza is because the Israeli communities are situated right alongside um, their Arab neighbors. And just in the past month has been a dramatic increase over 50 percent increase in shooting attacks uh in september there were 34 total shooting attacks of, of arabs against jews um in the past month there was a total of 139 molotov cocktails that were thrown at israeli cars and else and and other uh, israeli uh, or Jewish uh, houses and things like that these are numbers that are quite dramatic for israel and and you know, you probably haven't heard about this. I remember the mid-90s and the early 2000s, you'd hear about terrorist attacks in Israel all the time. And kind of this has kind of died down in some ways. And, and it's definitely not as bad as the first and second intifada. However, this is a, an incredible amount. If you're an Israeli driving through uh, the West Bank, this is the biblical heartland of Israel, places like Shiloh, uh, Tanakh, um, Bethel driving through these places and and daily there's an an arab having the weaponry to make an attack against your vehicle this becomes a great threat to you and your family um there has also been an increase in israeli action idf action inside the west bank as well to try and route out or remove the terrorist uh, terrorists from uh, from that area um, which might be part of the reasons why you have an increase in shooting attacks um, however, I think this is just an important story to, to not let uh, go unnoticed because the Bible is very um, specific in a, a specific end time event that we're watching for that shows how close we are to Jesus Christ's return. And that refers to the forceful takeover of East Jerusalem by the Arabs. The West Bank, of course, is 
basically, if you go by the lines in 1967 when Jerusalem was halved, the West Bank includes half of Jerusalem. And so while Israel controls all of this, all of East Jerusalem right now, right bordering and encircling a lot of those territories are territories that the the Arabs are in charge of. And the very fact that you can have so many shooting attacks taking place Arab on Jew in the West Bank just shows how Israel's outsourcing of the security of the West Bank to the Palestinian Authority, which is what they've done since Oslo, has, is an absolute disaster. It's basically saying that the Palestinian Authority will give you a bunch of weapons. They answer to Mahmoud Abbas and will train you to keep down your own terrorist threat um, against the state of Israel. And they do attack Hamas. They do try and attack their, their rival Palestinian faction. And yet, I mean, the fact that we can have this many shooting attacks in one month, one month, month shows us a lot of weapons that are that are there um, being waiting to waiting to be used in the West Bank. Before we let you go here, is there anything you would recommend for the listeners to read if they would like to better understand this? Yeah, I think uh, this biblical prophecy that concerns the East Jerusalem takeover by the Arabs and how that comes about and how it leads to other biblical end-time biblical prophecies, um, people should read Mr. Flurry's book, The Eternal Has Chosen Jerusalem, for background on that. Yeah, so this is a, a momentous trend, bigger than most Americans understand, and we will link to The Eternal Has Chosen Jerusalem. Uh, thanks very much for bringing us up to speed on that, Brent. For our final story of the show today, we'll discuss a disturbing alliance between the United Nations and Big Tech. To tell us about this, we'll go back to Andrew Miller. Yeah, this is an interesting story that got some news coverage this week about a, a UN f official making a very honest statement that uh, that really should concern a lot of people. Now, uh, most of our listeners probably know that uh, the big uh, internet search engines like Google uh, routinely censor their search results in a way that favors liberals. They, they censor things that are involving election fraud or the adverse effects of COVID vaccines or, or climate change stories that don't fit the political narrative. But this week there was a, there was a meeting of the World Economic Forum where the Undersecretary for Communications, Melissa Fleming, uh, she attended this World Economic Forum uh, meeting and basically <laughs> admitted that she was on the internet a while ago and noticed some stories against climate change on the front page of the Google results. And so the UN partnered with the big tech companies, Google primarily, to censor those uh, results. And uh, this is how uh, she phrased it at that meeting where she said, we own the science and we think the world should know it. And the platforms themselves do also. Uh, so just basically a, a really open boast uh, about the fact that like the the narrative Americans are seeing is not an open may the best facts win scientific debate where it says that the UN, they said we own the science and you're only going to hear what we want you uh, to hear. And uh, just a really shocking statement, I think, that uh, more people should be more people should be aware of. In the show notes, we'll uh, we'll put a, an article called "The Biggest Threat to American Democracy," uh, as well as a link to uh, Mr. Geoffrey's book "America Under Attack," that really highlights the fact that today, I mean, some liberals say that climate change is the biggest threat facing America. Other people say that Russia or, or China are the biggest threats facing America. But said, but really, the biggest threat facing America 
today is this uh, is this deep state that's hijacked the nation from the inside and is fundamentally transforming it with uh, with just like lies and deception and subterfuge. Uh, and this uh, this connection between uh, the Biden administration and the United Nations and the the World Economic Forum and these big tech companies to make sure that like people don't even find out about the truth, don't even get a chance to hear it, is uh, is really one of the central tenets of that threat. Yeah, we own the science. That is that really is just a stunning statement because true science is objective. It's humble. It trembles before truth and surrenders any claims that are disproven. It follows where the facts lead, free of any agenda. It can't be owned by a cabal of yeah. ideologues. <laughs> so that's just a, a stunning statement. We, we really appreciate you uh, bringing that to our attention, Andrew. We are now coming to the end of Trumpet Hour. Please send any comments you may have about today's episode to letters at thetrumpet.com. And thanks very much to our panel, Andrew Miller. Brent Noctegall, Mihailo Zekic, and Mr. Richard Palmer. Thanks also very much to Parker Campbell for audio editing. And we'll leave you today with these words from N. Scott Peck. To know the world, we must not only examine it, but we must simultaneously examine the examiner. Thank you for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world. been listening to Trumpet Hour on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG, and online at kpcg.fm. Understand your world.